This week on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show, we'll discuss financing challenges for young, beginning, and underserved producers, plus how modernized rules for the Endangered Species Act are being reinstated after a court ruling. We also have a brand new installment of Irons in the Fire with Paul Marchant later this hour. Welcome to the program. I'm Neil Larson. Our news is just ahead. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. Ouch! Well, by wearing a small remote device called a continuous glucose monitor, or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers. If you administer insulin three or more times per day or use an insulin pump, call now and learn how a CGM can help you. Painless. No more pricking my finger. No finger pricks. Convenience. They delivered it free and they took care of all the paperwork. You can reduce pain right away. Plus, it's accurate, easy to use, and helps you spend more time in range. And if you have insurance, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Call now and get free shipping of your new CGM. Plus, we'll bill your insurance for you. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. That's 800-417-0851. Well, this past week, Wednesday, marked a day-long White House-sponsored conference with various stakeholders discussing how to end hunger and improve nutrition and health in our nation by the year 2030. Rod Bain has more in this report. The conference has significant responsibilities to explore and define our nutrition problems and to map out recommendations for an immediate program of action. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack opening the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition and Health Wednesday. The day-long, live and virtual conference designed to address various issues associated with its focal subjects, including a national strategy as announced by President Joe Biden. The national strategy recognizes the critical role that nutrition plays in our health and our health care system and it acknowledges that we have to give families the tools to keep them healthy. The national strategy contains five pillars with breakout sessions focusing on areas within those pillars during the conference. The president emphasized the pillars and strategy will play a role in reaching goals such as end hunger in this country by the year 2030 and lower the toll that dye related diseases takes on for too many Americans. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Agricultural officials of the U.S. and several other G20 nations are urging the end of food and grain export restrictions now being imposed by some countries. Gary Crawford has more now. Because of disruptions in grain shipments out of Ukraine and the uncertainties about how much food from that country will actually be available to nations that need it and at what price, a number of countries have imposed restrictions on exports of their own ag products, such as wheat and rice. At the meeting of ag ministers of the G20 in Indonesia this week, Deputy U.S. Ag Secretary Jewel Brano urged countries to come out against trade restrictions and support free and open trade and really to double down on avoiding export restrictions and consider suspending temporary care because we need the free flow of food and agricultural products, especially to those in need. India is a G20 member and one of several countries which have restrictions on exports of food. Meanwhile, some countries are imposing unfair restrictions on imports of products. Secretary Brano urged those should be dropped as well. So that we could all work together to support a free flow of trade in food and agriculture. 
This is Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Agriculture Department officials recently spoke about challenges facing young, beginning, and underserved farmers in obtaining farm credit and loans and how the USDA is responding. Here's Rod Bain. Young, beginning, and underserved farmers and ranchers seeking farm loans and farm credit in several instances seem to have challenges obtaining such financing. One example was provided by Montana first-generation farmer and rancher Paul Neubauer during the National Farmers Union recent fly-in to Washington, D.C. and visit at Agriculture Department headquarters. I applied for a beginning farmer and rancher microloan and I was denied despite having a profitable business plan in custom grazing on organic cover crop acreage primarily because I didn't have 100% collateral to match and my business plan did not involve purchasing land, equipment, or cattle. USDA response to such challenges? Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says the department has several avenues in place in the way of addressing concerns and assisting producers. We have a beginning farmer and rancher advisory committee and they make a set of suggestions and recommendations in terms of what we ought to be doing. We do have a beginning farmer and rancher development program where we put tens of millions of dollars behind an effort to try to get folks interested. But I think we have to do a lot more. For instance, from the financing perspective. Part of it is making sure that the mechanisms of financing are available at levels that make sense, which is why we started when I was secretary before and expanded the microloan program. It's why we look at ways in which the crop insurance subsidies can be greater or better for beginning farmers. And making it easier for young, beginning, and underserved farmers to access land. The secretary says resources were recently invested to study the question of how to improve land access. I think it's beyond just simply USDA's capacity. I think it gets into the taxing system and structure. I think it gets into a variety of other mechanisms that need to be discussed because young farmers, even if they could get the credit, probably couldn't get enough to buy a substantial farm. Farm Service Agency Deputy Administrator Scott Marlowe says his agency is working on addressing issues of collateralization of farm loans, yet acknowledges... Some things, our hands are tied by legislation, by regulation. Yet he adds efforts continue to improve farm credit accessibility to beginning, young, and underserved farmers through USDA, and perhaps through a new farm bill. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. By the way, we'll have a deeper look at this challenge later in the program. Well, more of the medical community is coming to the conclusion that food can be a powerful medicine to prevent and treat many diseases. Gary Crawford has more in this report. President Biden at the White House Hunger Nutrition and Health Conference. People are realizing not only whether or not they're obese or not healthy, but certain diseases are affected by what they eat. We can draw on this knowledge to design and scale food is medicine programs. Which is what the head of the Rockefeller Foundation, Dr. Rajiv Shah, told the conference his group is planning to do. The Rockefeller Foundation and the American Heart Association, along with our inaugural partner Kroger, plans to mobilize $250 million to build a national food is medicine research initiative. Dr. Kofi Assel is with the National Children's Hospital in Washington. He says we need programs like that because most medical people are not trained about nutrition. The majority of medical schools don't reach even the minimum number of, of recommended hours to train around food and nutrition. But he says that is beginning to change now as more data comes in to prove food can be medicine. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. 
USDA's latest look at topsoil moisture conditions reveals standout numbers in the very short to short rating category. Rod Bain has more with USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey. Topsoil moisture shortages continue for over half of the nation. Per the latest USDA topsoil moisture report for the period ending September 25th. 54% of the country experiencing short to very short topsoil moisture. That is the highest number we have seen this year to date. And in fact, it's the highest number we've seen since October of 2020, which is when the current drought that's been going on for more than two years really started to ramp up. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says conversely, just 3% of the continental U.S. reports topsoil surplus numbers. And most of the states with surpluses ranging from 10 to 16% are in the Great Lakes region and the Northeast. States like Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, New York State, and Vermont. Also notable, Florida at 12% topsoil moisture surplus on September 25th, days before landfall of Hurricane Ian. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Highly pathogenic avian influenza is one of several factors that have pushed turkey and egg prices to record levels. Michael Clement shares more on what that means for consumers. Fall is here with Thanksgiving around the corner. As you plan your holiday meal, American Farm Bureau Federation economist Barrett Nelson says you will notice higher prices for turkey and eggs. We've seen record high prices in turkeys and eggs for that matter. And that really comes from some disruptions we've had in supply as we've had avian influenza that gave us some trouble in the spring, now starting to come back a little bit in the fall. Nelson says cases of highly pathogenic avian influenza resurfaced in August following the outbreak this spring. The first case of HPAI in a commercial or backyard flock since the outbreak in 2015 occurred on February 8th. Now we're starting to see a resurgence with another case, August 26th. Since that date, there have been 23 cases of high pathogenic avian influenza. And so as this has crept up, we started to see some concerns about turkey supplies. Additionally, supply, demand, and inflation are all contributing to the record prices as well. Nelson says how long the record prices continue hinges on future outbreaks of HPAI. If we see a spring resurgence of HPAI, we may continue to see some declining numbers. The good news is that fall HPAI detections are well below these spring numbers. And while there should be enough to go around for Thanksgiving, pressure will keep these prices high with supplies forecasted lower and demand forecasted to increase for 2023. Learn more on the Market Intel page at FB.org. Michael Clements, Washington. What did the first U.S. pasture and rangeland condition report for this fall season reveal about such conditions across the country? Well, Rod Bain has this report with USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey. The first fall week of fall revealed little change in overall national pasture and rangeland condition. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says for the period ending September 25th. No change in the very poor-to-poor ratings at 43%. We did see a decrease in the good-to-excellent ratings this week to 26%, down from last week's 28%. 
improved conditions in the Four Corners region, and good conditions for several states east of the Mississippi River are offset by very poor-to-poor pasture and rangeland condition ratings in most states in the Plains. Every single one of the Plains states except North Dakota reporting rangeland and pasture conditions at least 40 percent very poor-to-poor, led by three states in the middle, Oklahoma 75 percent, Kansas 71 percent, Nebraska 70 percent. Continuing concerns about natural feed for that region's livestock during the winter months. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. When we return, a deeper look at those challenges for young and beginning farmers, plus a look at some surprising data in the latest cattle feedlot report on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. Ouch! Well, by wearing a small remote device called a Continuous Glucose Monitor, or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers. If you administer insulin three or more times per day or use an insulin pump, call now and learn how a CGM can help you. Painless. No more pricking my finger. No finger pricks. Convenience. They delivered it free and they took care of all the paper You can reduce pain right away. Plus, it's accurate, easy to use, and helps you spend more time in range. And if you have insurance, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Call now and get free shipping of your new CGM. Plus, we'll bill your insurance for you. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. That's 800-417-0851. If you served in the Marine Corps, by now you know about the contaminated water problem at Camp Lejeune. If you were stationed or worked at Camp Lejeune from 1953 to 1987, you probably have a lot of questions. We have some answers. You could be entitled to compensation. Billions of dollars are being allocated to pay for damages to anyone stationed at Camp Lejeune during that time. Unfortunately, it appears that officials may have known the contaminated water problem existed and did little to protect their men. The Semper Fi Code was not honored. If you or someone in your family has developed a serious illness, including various forms of cancer, call this Camp Lejeune legal support line right now. You can't turn back the clock and change what happened, but you can certainly call right now and learn your rights as a Marine. Here's the number. 800-990-1070. 800-990-1070. That's 800-990-1070. Paid for by Legal Alert Line. Welcome back to the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Obtaining credit is one challenge several young, beginning, and underserved farmers and ranchers face as they begin or expand their operation. Rod Bain looks at this challenge and how USDA and others are among those working to improve access to farm loans and other forms of credit in this edition of Agriculture USA. It's considered one of the primary challenges young, beginning, and underserved farmers and ranchers face in beginning and expanding their operations. 
obtaining farm credit. Beginning farmers often do things differently than the farmers many loan officers are used to. Julia Asherman of the National Young Farmers Coalition providing one of several examples of such challenges. Opinions being offered as Congress crafts a new farm bill and USDA continues its efforts to make farm loans and entry into agriculture more accessible to young, beginning, and underserved producers. We've got to make sure we simplify the process as best we can. I'm Rod Bain. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack and others join us as we look at lending challenges and ways to meet those challenges for young, beginning, and underserved farmers in this edition of Agriculture USA. It was earlier this summer before a House Agriculture Committee hearing on credit for young, beginning, and underserved farmers that economist Nathan Kaufman of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City provided an outlook on the farm economy particularly in the context of challenges faced by the entire ag sector over the past two years. While the strength of farm income these past two years is likely to sustain credit conditions in agriculture for some time, some borrowers may face heightened financial stress in the year ahead if costs continue to rise and commodity prices ease further. What might this mean from a farm credit perspective for young, beginning, and underserved farmers? Georgia Farmer and National Young Farmers Coalition Representative Julia Asherman says despite success in her operation, the road to obtaining farm credit for her and other young and beginning farmers is fraught with roadblocks, risks, and layered complex challenges that young farmers face in accessing credit and finding secure land tenure. She says current lending processes in many cases are slower than necessary, especially when land acquisition is involved and does not build in flexibilities when a diversified operation applies for credit. We're more likely to be organic. We're more likely to be diversified. We're more likely to be a smaller scale with more focus on specialty crops. We're more likely to direct market. We're more likely to be women, people of color, and we're more likely to be first generation. A specific example of challenges in obtaining farm credit was recently provided by Montana first-generation farmer and rancher Paul Neubauer that during the National Farmers Union fly-in to Washington, D.C., and the organization's visit to Agriculture Department headquarters. I applied for a beginning farmer and rancher microloan, and I was denied, despite having a profitable business plan and custom grazing on organic cover crop acreage, primarily because I didn't have 100% collateral to match, and my business plan did not involve purchasing land, equipment, or cattle. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says you USDA has several avenues in place in the way of addressing challenges and assisting producers. We do have a beginning farm and rancher development program where we put tens of millions of dollars behind an effort to try to get folks interested. Another avenue is USDA's Beginning Farmers and Ranchers Advisory Committee, which Illinois Farm Bureau member Adam Brown is a member. Where I led a work group dedicated to providing recommendations to USDA for improvements to existing programs on behalf of new and beginning farmers and ranchers. With recommendations ranging from tools for transition to a revised definition of a beginning farmer. Secretary Vilsack says from the financing perspective, Part of it is making sure that the mechanisms of financing are available at levels that make sense, which is why we started when I was secretary before and expanded the microloan program. It's why we look at ways in which the crop insurance subsidies can be greater or better for beginning farmers. And making it easier for young, beginning, and underserved farmers to access land. 
Farm Service Agency Deputy Administrator Scott Marlow says his agency is working on addressing issues of collateralization of farm loans. Yet technologies... Some things are hands are tied by legislation, by regulation. And as Secretary Vilsack notes, in the present... Even if they could get the credit, probably couldn't get enough to buy a substantial farm. Which is where some believe a new farm bill and what it potentially offers to young, beginning, and underserved farmers will come into play. Alcorn State University's Donia Davies says streamlining federal farm credit programs through a new farm bill would assist in improving flexibilities and transparency in obtaining loans. And with the increased cost of all inputs, we need our farmers to have access to increased operating loan amounts to remain competitive. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. USDA's latest report on cattle feedlot activity had a bit of a surprise for some industry analysts. Gary Crawford has more. Many of the nation's livestock industry analysts and marketers got a fairly big surprise last week in USDA's report on cattle feedlot activity and the number of animals placed into feedlots during August. That was the surprise. Most analysts expected placements to be 4 or 5% lower than August a year ago. Some had even projected placements would be as much as 7% lower than August of last year. And the number came out to be fractionally above Mm, at 2.1 million head. This from USDA Livestock Analyst Shale Shagam. And with placements at 2.1 million, marketings of fed cattle at 2 million head. That put the U.S. feedlot inventory September 1st slightly above the same date a year ago. And as Shale Shagam pointed out to us, This would be the second highest inventory for the month. Uh, exceeded only by 2020 when we had about 11.4 million head on feed. At least this is the second highest September 1st feedlot inventory since USDA began tracking it some 26 years ago. So back to that surprisingly high number of placements into feedlots during August. Why so high? There's one uh, six-letter word, drought. Is my math right? (laughs) Well, Shale, either your math is wrong or your uh, spelling is drought's a seven-letter word. (laughs) That's right. Uh, That's right, Shale. We we could make it a six-letter word, just take out the final letter, make it drow. But anyway, it means the same however you spell it, right? With the continued dry conditions and in, in, in large swaths of the U.S. and uh, declining availability of forage, we're just continuing to see heavy placements of cattle. Heavy placements of lighter weight cattle. So Shale says after seeing this USDA report. One of the bigger questions that uh, has to be considered and one obviously that we're going to be considering here at USDA is to what extent are these cattle being pulled forward? cattle that might normally be placed later in the year as as forge normally would have diminished have simply been placed earlier a cattle that might have been going onto winter pasture and then coming off in the spring might be reflected in at least to some extent in this in these placements of animals all of this possibly indicating we're digging into a shrinking pool of cattle available for future placements which several months down the road might result in lower beef production higher cattle prices gary crawford for the u.s department of agriculture in our next segment keeping potluck dinners safe for everyone and the modernized esa rules have been reinstated on the idaho farm and ranch show 
If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. Ouch! Well, by wearing a small remote device called a Continuous Glucose Monitor, or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers. If you administer insulin three or more times per day or use an insulin pump, call now and learn how a CGM can help you. Painless. No more pricking my finger. No finger pricks. Convenience. They delivered it free and they took care of all the paperwork. You can reduce pain right away. Plus, it's accurate, easy to use, and helps you spend more time in range. And if you have insurance, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Call now and get free shipping of your new CGM. Plus, we'll bill your insurance for you. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. That's 800-417-0851. If you served in the Marine Corps, by now you know about the contaminated water problem at Camp Lejeune. If you were stationed or worked at Camp Lejeune from 1953 to 1987, you probably have a lot of questions. We have some answers. You could be entitled to compensation. Billions of dollars are being allocated to pay for damages to anyone stationed at Camp Lejeune during that time. Unfortunately, it appears that officials may have known the contaminated water problem existed and did little to protect their men. The Semper Fi Code was not honored. If you or someone in your family has developed a serious illness, including various forms of cancer, call this Camp Lejeune legal support line right now. You can't turn back the clock and change what happened, but you can certainly call right now and learn your rights as a Marine. Here's the number. 800-990-1070. 800-990-1070. That's 800-990-1070. Paid for by Legal Alert Line. Welcome back. It's the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. I'm Neil Larson. This is the season for potluck dinners. Gary Crawford has this report about how to help make sure that dinner doesn't make someone sick. You can find practically anything online if you try, including a song about our subject for today. That's what we're talking about. Food, that's my favorite dish. This is the time of year for them, and in fact, I attended a small one at my church a few days ago, actually a potluck lunch, and what a spread to choose from. We've got some hot barbecue sausages, we've got quiche, we've got chicken salad, we've got ham sandwiches, we have broccoli salad, we have shrimp, fruit, muffins. And on and on and on. That's Pat Dodson. She heads up the women's group here at the church and also coordinates the potluck meals that the group has. And with food coming in from lots of different people, it's a big responsibility because as one food safety expert, expert told us there have been outbreaks of foodborne illness that have happened because of potlucks because food safety wasn't taken into consideration as best as possible. That's Meredith Carruthers, a food safety expert with the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Meat and Poultry Hotline, the number of which we'll give you in a minute. And yes, there are food-related illness outbreaks traced back to potluck meals, some of them quite large outbreaks. However, I feel uh, pretty good about this one being run by uh, you, Pat Dodson. This group pretty much has been doing it for probably 25 years. And we, to my knowledge, have never had an issue. Not a single problem. Nope, not aware of any problems at all. 
Well, that's pretty good. Then you must know most of the rules about keeping perishable cold foods cold and hot foods hot and all of that, right? Yeah. For example, when we came early to set up, we had things in the refrigerator. We didn't bring them out when we got here at 9.30. So they've been in the fridge or in the warmer until now. Oh, I see. And how long, you know, will these foods be kept out here on this um, serving table? I don't know the science on it, but I know it's not supposed to be out more than a couple of hours. Okay. Well, let's get the science on that from Meredith right now. I understand it's all about bacteria, keeping them from multiplying to dangerous levels. We know that below 40 degrees or so, they just sit there. No funny business going on below 40 degrees. As you get above that 40 degree temperature range, you're essentially creating an environment where they can start to multiply. If bacteria start to multiply to dangerous levels, they can create heat-resistant toxins that if you try to reheat food later, won't go away, and those, if you eat them, could make you sick. Oh, and how long does it take for that kind of thing to happen? If you have it out there for less than two hours at room temperature, the bacteria is still within a safe level. Two hours. So, Pat, you're right on the money with this, right? Yeah. We're trying. We're trying. <laughs> and if you have a question about attending or hosting a potluck meal, you can call the Meat and Poultry Hotline. Here's the number, 888-MP-HOTLINE. 888-MP-HOTLINE. If you call between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, you'll be connected to a live expert, or you can do live chat at ask.usda.gov. And uh, here's to a safe and a great... Ah, yes, Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Modernized rules on the Endangered Species Act are officially reinstated after an appeals court decision. Chad Smith has more on the good news for farmers and ranchers. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that a district court improperly vacated 2019 revisions of the Endangered Species Act. The appeals court says the lower court erred by reversing the regulations without considering whether they were lawful. Travis Cushman, Deputy General Counsel for Litigation and Public Policy with the American Farm Bureau Federation, talks about the decision. There was a challenge against a modernized regulation that AFBF had helped to get through. It was challenged and a lower court recently vacated it. AFBF appealed and we just want the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit agreed with us that the lower court incorrectly vacated the decision. He talks about how important this decision is for U.S. farmers and ranchers. There's two reasons. One, it reinstates an important and modernized Native Species Act that we think is much, much better to protect Native species, but also to ensure that farmers and ranchers are able to do their work. Second, it creates much, much better precedent that forces federal courts to actually do the job of looking at the law before they decide to get rid of it. This is a problem that we've faced many times where groups decide they don't like the rules that we get done, go to certain courts and get the rules kicked out without the court ever actually looking at the rule and saying, is this rule lawful or not? However, Cushman says the process isn't over yet. There's going to be two options. The court can either now send this back to the agencies to work on, which we think is the appropriate action, or alternatively, the court might try to fix the problem it done in the first place by looking at the rule itself. Hopefully, the court will do the right thing and keep the rule in place for the time being. Chad Smith, Washington. Efforts to streamline and build upon natural resource conservation service programs and services is part of an ongoing preparation for a new fiscal year starting October 1st. Rod Bain has more. 
a new investment in conservation as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. That according to USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service Chief Terry Cosby. Approximately 20 billion of that is going to be coming to NRCS to look at how we can help with everything that you do out there. You're the early adopters. You've done all of these things. Look at these practices that we see across this countryside as we're out there and all the innovation that you're talking about. Speaking recently to National Farmers Union members, the chief says while there has been much focus on climate smart agricultural programs and practices, he notes the importance of traditional NRCS programs in that and other realms of conservation efforts. Think the Environmental Quality Incentive Program and Conservation Stewardship Program as examples. So come the start of the new federal fiscal year on October 1st. Our state's out there. We're going to be talking about our programs. We're going to be looking at how do we take that, but also this new infusion of dollars that's coming into NRCS. How do we make that a little more seamless? How do we make sure that when you walk through the door, you know what's happening there? We're trying to take the complications out of a lot of this. So, for instance, streamlining funding application processes. In addition, the chief, state conservationists, participating producers, and other partners and stakeholders are looking at ways to address the growing producer popularity of these programs. We'll be looking at those programs that we've had in the past. They're oversubscribed. We're only able to fund about a quarter of the applications that come through the door. But with these new infusion of funds, we want to make sure that we look at some of that backlog. But we also have all of these other folks that would like to participate. It's not all about the backlog. It's about new producers that might walk through the door. When you look at urban producers or small size producers, how do we make room at the table for anyone that wants to participate in farm bill programs? NRCS response for conservation practice technical assistance requests are also being looked at. Farmers and landowners will do these practices on their own if they had the technical assistance. Not all of the time there are you coming in looking for financial assistance. So we want to get our staff ready for that. We're going to be doing these conservation plans and making sure that when you walk out of that office, if the conservation plan is what you want, that's what we're going to give you. If you're going to go out and do these practices on your own, we want to make sure that we're ready there to be there to assist you. And oh, by the way, we may have some financial assistance to help you get it done. Chief Cosby adds one other subject of focus, quantifying conservation results to environmental benefits. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. In our final segment, the science behind the spectacular fall colors. And of course, Paul Marchant will close things out today with another installment of Irons in the Fire just ahead on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. Ouch! Well, by wearing a small remote device called a continuous glucose monitor, or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers. If you administer insulin three or more times per day or use an insulin pump, call now and learn how a CGM can help you. Painless. No more pricking my finger. No finger pricks. Convenience. They delivered it free and they took care of all the paperwork. You can reduce pain right away. Plus, it's accurate, easy to use, and helps you spend more time in range. And if you have insurance, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Call now and get free shipping of your new CGM. Plus, we'll bill your insurance for you. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. That's 800-417-0851. Welcome back to the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. 
U.S. Forest Service plant psychologists explain the science behind the changing of leaf colors in autumn, as well as how best to view such sites. Here's Rod Bain. As autumn is now underway, so is the transition of the change of color in many of our nation's forest lands. But perhaps you wonder as you visit your local forest or take a drive to see fall colors, what causes the change from the greens of spring and summer to the golds and reds of fall? U.S. Forest Service plant physiologist Paul Schauberg starts by explaining, Not all species turn or have the capability of turning red in the fall. Which goes beyond evergreens and various deciduous trees. For instance, maples and white ash foliage can turn various shades of red, while leaves on species like cottonwood and birch transform only to yellow. And that leads to understanding that leaves, in essence, only have three pigments of color. The green, which is chlorophyll, which helps trees capture light to make food energy, sugars. Then there's the yellow carotenoids, which also help the leaves capture light, but also have a protective influence. And finally, there's the red anthocyanins. And those have a protective function primarily. Indeed, they've been called the Swiss Army knife of plant protective compounds because they have so many protective qualities. The chlorophyll that gives leaves its green colors starts to fade come the shorter days of fall, giving way to existing yellow protective compounds. Then there is the third red pigment. With minor stresses in the fall, they are produced as a new compound when the leaves are actually going to be starting to senesce. Odd in that the tree is using sugars and nutrients to build the red pigments in dying leaves. Forest Service research of this phenomenon indicates because these are protective compounds, they are produced in only some tree species to help protect the leaves to stay on the tree a little longer so that it can reabsorb the remaining sugars and nutrients that are in those leaves. In part, for use in development of next year's leaves. Now how best to observe fall colors, whether you visit woodlands close by or far away. U.S. Forest Service plant physiologist Kevin Smith says it is not just about the trees with foliage that change color. View the foliage in areas that have some topographic relief, hills and valleys. The timing of color can vary from hilltop to the valley. You can get sort of a Persian rug effect of details of the mosaic of color when you have a little bit of elevation. Smith adds that forest composition, in part based on land use, also plays a role in what one sees in the fall color portrait. Having a mixed deciduous and some pine or hemlock mixed in coniferous trees that retain their green needles for some period of time, that having that green mix in is interesting visually along with the color. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. And finally today, Paul Marchant's Irons in the Fire. Happy fall, y'all. This is Paul Marchant coming at you from southern Idaho where spud harvest is in full swing. I hope if you're involved in the harvest that all is going well. And if you're not, be careful out on those roads because there's spud trucks everywhere. But the weather is cooperating and things are looking well so far, as far as I can tell. When I was about seven years old, an old horse trader of sorts showed up in our country with a truckload of Shetland ponies. I can't remember his name or where he came from, but he must have been a pretty good peddler of horseflesh because not all of those ponies left on the same truck they came in on. 
Up to that point, my dad, like a lot of other ranch dads, was not too shy in stating his disdain for Shetland ponies. The way I remember it, we were going to never have one of those little turtle makers on the place. They had a reputation for being rank and cantankerous, and the kids ended up outgrowing them before you could get them broke. And this, mind you, was before Shetland ponies were ruined by the ridiculous miniature horse craze. Anyway, reputation notwithstanding, we eventually ended up with three Shetland ponies on the place. There's a story behind the arrival of each one, but it all started with the pony peddler in the bobtail truck. My twin sister and my cousin Michael, who was five months younger than we were, spent the better part of three or four summers riding those three ponies around the ranch in our hometown, doing everything from Shetland match racing to taking the milk cows to and from the cow pasture every day. The ponies were never shod nor saddled, and it was one thing for our dads to relent and allow ponies on the place, but they certainly were not going to waste a cent on any pony tack. For pasture in the summer, we staked them out along the local roads all summer long. If we didn't learn how to ride, we at least learned responsibility. Those ponies, Dusty, Indian, and Reno Chick, carried us three kids far enough to at least earn a place somewhere close to heaven. When I think back on those years and experiences, I'm reminded of just how lucky those few of us who were raised on family farms and ranches really are. Because my dad and uncle were running the family place and my mother's brothers had a place nearby, we always had cousins and extended family around. I grew up with four sisters. My little brother didn't arrive until I was 15, so I had to learn the art of being rowdy and obnoxious from my five cousins. Two or more of them were always in some sort of brawl. We had a lot of, it seemed like a good idea at the time, moments. What would start out as cow pie chucking contest would turn into a BB gun fight, only after we couldn't inflict enough pain with the rock fight. Michael and I were the youngest, so we were often the subjects of some sort of abuse masquerading as fun or a toughening up charade. Since we had a little herd of dairy cows, we always had a fresh supply of dairy calves of various sizes to ride. We'd rope the biggest ones and crowd them into corners so we could get a makeshift bull rope around them. We'd ride them as long as we could get them to buck. In truth, the calves were probably too worn out to buck much by the time we'd get them caught and cornered, but we still did our best Larry Mahan impressions anyway. We all grew up spending large part of the summers in the hay fields. Before we were big enough to buck bales, Michael and I would roll the bales closer so the older guys could throw them on the flatbed wagons. We always had spare time while they unloaded wagons in the stackyard, so on one hot day we decided we'd take a dip in the creek while we waited for the next empty wagon. Of course, we didn't dare get our clothes wet, so we left them sitting on the bank. So Kelly and Lloyd, my or Michael's older brothers, figured it wasn't fair that we got to screw around while they worked, so they stole our clothes while we were in the middle of the creek. We weren't big enough or smart enough to get our clothes back from them, so we ended up riding the ponies most of the way home, bareback and bare-butted, before the older cousins finally showed a little mercy and gave us our underwear for the last half a mile at least. The irony of family farms is that fondness for the land, the people, and the way of life can lead to the worst kinds of battles. As generations expand, there often isn't enough land and capital to support everyone who wants to stay. Something has to give and someone's going to have to leave. 
even if a sibling or child wants to leave, there's usually a part of him that will always want to go back. Home to a farmer ranch kid, for better or worse, has deeper roots and a stronger pull than most people in the world can comprehend. I believe it's really our blessing and our curse. The best thing that can happen is that those lucky few that know and have felt the bittersweet bonds of the land will hold fast to the values that are ingrained in their souls, if not the land itself. When all is said and done, you can't take the land with you anyway. And I think it's better to leave a legacy of hard work and honor for your family, regardless of where you live, than it is to leave them the best ranch in Montana. But it sure would be nice to be able to leave them both, wouldn't it? This is Paul Marchant with another version of Irons in the Fire, wishing you the best of weeks. Well, that will do it for the program today. I'm Neil Larson, and I'll return next week. Thank you for joining me on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show.